1: Welcome to the inaugural episode of New Books in Global Conflict. I'm your host, Amarnath Singham. Today we'll be talking with Christopher Powell, author of Barbaric Civilization, A Critical Sociology of Genocide, published by McGill-Queens University Press in 2011. What exactly is genocide? Is there a fundamental difference between episodes of genocide and how we go about our daily life? Or can it be said that the roots of the modern world, or civilization itself, has the potential to produce genocide. If the latter is true, then what does it say about us and the society we have constructed for ourselves? Christopher Powell, in his illuminating new book, Barbaric Civilization, provides new insights into these and related questions. For Powell, the idea that genocide is something that happens when civilization fails or is something that should be understood as fundamentally different or wholly alien or outside of our daily day-to-day experience is suspect. Rather, he links genocide and the human potential for atrocity to civilization itself. In other words, there are clues present in the modern world, as well as the modern state structure, that can help us better understand the process of genocide and what makes atrocities possible. To understand genocide as bad and civilization as good, according to Powell, continues to confuse the issue. If civilization can produce genocide, he argues, then civilization is not the unmitigated good that we often take it for. The resulting book is a theoretically sophisticated journey through a difficult and all too frequently misunderstood and controversial topic. So, Chris, thanks for joining us. Hope you're having a good morning. Yeah, I am.
2: Thanks. Yeah, you too. Um,
1: So, I guess we can start by
2: uh, discussing a little bit about about your background, um, how you got interested in sociology to begin with, and more specifically on on this issue of violence and genocide.
0: Well, that... Was part of what got me into sociology in the first place. I had an interest in human rights and uh, especially human rights issues in Latin America in the 1980s. I started my undergrad in '89, so those issues were pretty fresh. And uh, I was also interested in militarism as a global phenomenon and in uh, disarmament, um, on you know, in the wake of the Cold War and the, there having been the possibility of global nuclear war. So those are the issues that made me want to study uh, politics and and society. Uh, And uh, when I was designing the dissertation project, uh, I I was sort of drawn back to that original interest. And I think part of the motivation was that in my study of discipline, uh, I hadn't found a lot of literature that directly addressed the social dynamics of violence in a convincing way. And a lot of the a lot of social theory is oriented to normative behavior, and I wanted to look at what happens when uh we get as far as possible from what's usually considered to be normative behavior. I thought that would work on two levels because that would let me investigate issues of violence, human rights uh, and it would also be revealing uh, of an aspect of social structure that that doesn't usually get looked at. That when we look at the thing in its extreme, we see something about how it functions normally. And so, by normative behavior, you mean sort of day-to-day, you know, comfortable, you know, middle-class North American life—the uh, right. situation when people are obeying the rule of law and things are going as they're supposed to. Be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. That was, and, it, and then... The, uh, sorry, oh, then. sorry. That was the 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 thing that jumped out once I started looking at the literature on genocide is that um, the 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 literature assumed that genocide was a kind of social breakdown, that it was uh, a society falling apart in some way. That was kind of the framing assumption for the the material that existed when I began the research, which is I started doing the research in nineteen 19- No, actually a bit later, 2002. Uh, So uh, um, at that time, uh, there hadn't been a lot written that's come out in the last 10 years about uh, the roots of genocide in modern institutions. Uh, And I wanted to corrected that assumption that genocide is a product of social breakdown. I thought, what if we look at how it's produced by normal institutions? What what would that tell us about normal institutions, and and what would that tell us about genocide? Right.
2: Is is, is this part of your doctoral dissertation, this book, or is it something that came after?
0: Yeah, I grew out of the doctoral dissertation. Uh, So uh, part of it, too, is that actually I wanted to write a work on theory uh, and to address... Pretty big theoretical questions, and uh, I wanted people to read the book, and so I needed mm-hmm. to make it about something. And mm-hmm. I couldn't think of anything more compelling for me personally or for a potential audience than genocide. Right.
2: Um, you, you spend a, a, a little bit of time in the book situating yourself um, in terms of describing your background and uh, not only why you chose to write the book, but your even your ethnic and racial. Positioning, I guess. Why did you feel the need to do that?
0: Yeah, that's an important issue in social science. Uh, the, the default attitude is that we're producing knowledge that's objectively valid and to do that we try to minimize our own subjectivity as much as possible. So we remove ourselves from the picture and that's a way of writing that uh, conveys an impression of unshakable authority and I had uh, intellectual and political criticisms of that position. Uh, as part of the theory that I was developing, it's assumed that one always writes, one always produces knowledge from a position within social relations. Now, there's no objective, uh, universal standpoint that uh, a researcher can assume or, or even approximate. And so it was intellectually important to indicate my point of entry into the issue, uh, that my own relationship to the issue is part of what is generating the knowledge that I'm producing. And so it's it's information that the reader needs to have.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: It's not generally something we find too much in the study of genocide or in in political science, right? Is it more of a kind of uh, recent sociological? Position uh, phenomenon where where authors tend to situate themselves or at least become conscious of where their positionality
0: is. Yeah, for me it comes directly out of feminist theorizing, uh, specifically right. Dorothy Smith, who is a huge influence on me. Even, even though I can kind of only really rely on one work of hers, *Conceptual Practices of Power*, it, it, it changed my whole orientation to social science, uh, and and I use her in the book. Um, but yeah, it's that that. It comes out of that feminist critique of science, uh, mm-hmm. and, and so the impact of that is pretty recent. So I wanted to help, too, on a political level, perpetuate that. I wanted to, to help push my fellow scholars uh, to think about their situatedness and their relation to their subject matter and, and, and make that explicit and to and help encourage readers to expect that.
2: Um, so the t- the title of the book uh, kind of touches on your broader argument, I guess, which we'll get into uh, a little later in the interview. But uh, I wonder if you can unpack some of the terms that you use in the subtitle, which is mm. a critical, critical sociology of genocide. So uh, we'll get to genocide in a bit. But what, what do you mean by critical and what do you mean by sociology? And why is that perspective uh, a, a unique perspective to bring to the study of genocide?
0: It's funny because. Uh, part of me wishes that I had subtitled it "A Radical Sociology of Genocide." Uh, I didn't quite have the the hutzpah uh, to go through with that. Um, I, I was a little worried that that would, um, you know, alienate some some readers. I was probably wrong. It probably would have been better to uh, mm-hmm. do that. Uh, you know, by "critical," I wanted to convey that uh, it's a work that's not just looking at genocide. Itself as a phenomenon, but that it's using genocide to raise critical questions about the society that we're familiar with and aspects of society that we take for granted, and also that to use genocide as a way to raise critical questions about social science and the relationship of social scientists to the things that we study. So I didn't. I, I wanted to signal that this was going to be a work that. Uh, doesn't just look at genocide and leave everything else as it is. That we're by looking at genocide, we're going to be forced to reevaluate what we take for granted about the world around us and what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have liked to have called it a radical sociology because the goal was actually to, to theorize um, genocide, to understand genocide, as a product of forces that go to the very root of the society that we live in. And that to really eliminate genocide from the world, if that's the ultimate goal, will, will mean uh, changing society down to its very roots, and that it would require that. And that also, too, that it's a bit oriented to uh, people who are not you know, part of a political elite. That a lot of political theory it's, it's written in terms of, or a lot of political studies of genocide are written in terms of what should governments do about genocide. And I wanted to mm-hmm. engage a bit with the issue of what do we do about genocide if we're not in government, uh, if we're right. subjects. How do we approach understanding the issue and doing something about it?
1: When you
2: say down down to the roots, I mean that's a that's a fairly heavy statement, I guess. So what what uh, what do you have in mind when you say um, the, the, the the very roots of the of our civilization?
0: Wow. Uh, well, to see, <laughs> I have to think about that for a sec. To explain that, uh, or, or to understand genocide. Uh, Sorry, I'm just having a complete brain fart because uh, my mind went like three different directions at once. Uh, um, yeah, uh, part part of what happened is that when I was um, doing the, the the research for the, the project, and uh, particularly when I was studying colonial genocide, I was reading David Stannard's uh, book uh, American Holocaust, and just getting my head around the scale, the magnitude of genocide of indigenous peoples in the Western Hemisphere. It was really clear to me that this was not a marginal phenomenon. If uh, you know, the, the world, as we know it, the modern world, is formed through colonialism, and it doesn't happen without colonialism. And uh, colonialism it seems clear to me doesn't happen without a fair amount of genocide uh, of indigenous peoples. Not everywhere or in every instance, but it's a very common. Uh, element of the colonial process. So the implication of that to me was that genocide was one of the constitutive features of the modern world. The modern world was created in part through genocide. So that that's the first thread of that idea of, that it goes down to the roots. If it's if mm-hmm. constitutive feature, then it's got to be there in the roots. And then so the implication was, well, uh, and we should be able to find causal dynamics that contribute to genocide in the, the normal structures and practices of everyday life in modern Western liberal democracies. In other words, in the societies that are functioning uh, closest to that normative ideal of Western civilization. We should be able to look at at uh, at their routine functioning and find processes that help us understand how genocide gets produced. And so I looked for those at the level of the institutional structure of the state uh, and at the level of how individual subjectivity is formed. Uh, so there's an element in our everyday practice of the self that uh, makes genocide possible mm-hmm. and then gets mobilized when, when genocidal violence uh, is brewing and that uh, that element of subjectivity is something that's historically specific it's not a human universal it's uh, a, a cultural product
1: yeah so i mean so we
2: all so, so in uh, under that uh view we all have a kind of residue of the way in which the modern or modern state structure was created mm-hmm. that has as one of its components uh the the, the, the some past injustice or past genocide that, that, that led to the
0: construction of that state. Yeah, and I mean, I think the simplest way I can put that is that one of the necessary uh, elements of genocide is the exclusion of the other from the universe of moral obligation. Uh, it's a phrase that, that sociologist Helen Fine made popular, although she she actually picks it up from Durkheim, uh, exclusion from the universe of moral obligation. In order to commit genocide, uh, uh, a person or group of people has to be defined in such a way that we have no moral obligations to them, mm-hmm. and uh, that the capacity to do that is is part of our uh, habitual uh, mental toolkit. The, the that we have a capacity to define others as uh, as evil or as abject, and therefore to to remove, absolve ourselves of any moral responsibility to them. Right. So, I mean, the figure that kind of fulfills that at, at the moment in, in Western culture is the figure of the terrorist. Mm-hmm. The terrorist, you know, almost by definition has become somebody who's just absolutely evil, who, who, um, you know, one one can do anything to. And so we have these, you know, you watch Jack Bauer on 24 and it's this fantasy about being able to torture and murder the terrorist over and over again. Uh, that that habit of thought, it's it's we don't put it into practice very much in our everyday lives, but it's um, a potentiality that's there.
2: Yeah. Um, you make interesting use of um, uh, theorists like Hannah Arendt and Zygmunt Bauman, who's one of my favorites, and uh, Norbert Elias. I guess. So I mean, where did you feel that their previous kind of work on genocide, especially people like Bauman? Um, what did you take from them, and what did you feel needed to be critiqued? Uh,
0: yeah, Bauman was was really useful for me. He really made the whole project possible. Uh, and uh, what Bauman and Arendt both have in common is that the, they're willing to look at the Holocaust in particular and perceive it in non-mythological terms. Uh, you know, rather than seeing it the the genocide uh of, of Jews as um, you know a kind of innocence of Satan incarnate uh seeing the Nazis as insane or demonic they were, they're willing to look at how these are in many ways quite normal people doing things that are in many ways quite quite normal uh, uh you know Eichmann make shuffling papers in an office, making decisions about how to allocate resources requisitioning parts for trucks mm-hmm. uh, is is part of what makes the Holocaust possible uh, and Bauman really develops a nice argument about how modern bureaucracy distances the individual from the moral consequences of their action so when right. when the you know the Nazis on trial uh, and Nuremberg kept saying, "Well, I was doing my job." Uh-huh. Uh, you know, the, the re- moralistic reaction to that is, "That's a terrible cop out." Uh, you know, you should have known that your job was wrong. But uh, Bauman takes seriously uh, the, that experience—the experience of the bureaucrat who is um, following procedures and doing a job—and that's a, again, that's socially historically distinctive. Uh, the modern period makes it possible on a unprecedented scale for there to be these large organizations where people uh, perform uh, impersonal uh, routine activities which can have these terrible consequences, uh, atrocious consequences. And I was interested in that um, impunity that um, Mm -hmm. we have a tendency when we see a great evil to assume that there's a great evil intention that goes along with that, matches the evil of the outcome. Uh, But um, in in genocides of indigenous peoples by colonizers, um, sometimes you find evidence of a kind of a casualness. Like the genocide happens is you know the, the Columbus's extermination of the natives of Hispanolia. In, in a sense, it kind of happened because it was easy to do it. It didn't right. take a great intention. Uh, and and the the Holocaust is this frightening similarity that uh, for many of the people involved. There didn't need to be a hatred of the Jews or uh, you know, a strong ideological commitment to, to Nazi racial doctrines um, because the structure of the situation just made it uh, participating in genocide into the path of least resistance for people. And the uh, the moral consequences of their actions were off stage, so they didn't have to confront them. Uh, it's that kind of event where... Uh, a, the way that a social situation is organized and structured, you know, makes it possible for people to do extraordinary things, things they would never do uh, otherwise. Uh, that really fascinates me.
2: So, do you see that functioning even in, in, in the kind of contemporary society as well, or is, oh, it, is, is it more?
0: Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I mean, definitely, you know, in many contexts, uh, when you know, shareholders of a corporation make a decision about an investment that's going to uh, ruin the lives of hundreds or thousands of people because they're going to lose their jobs and, and, and by extension lose their homes, lose the life that they've been building for themselves for two decades because you know a factory is no longer profitable. Uh, it, there's that same distancing that's at work and that same uh, impunity that uh, the costs of the action are not being borne or even witnessed by the people who are making the decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you wouldn't you wouldn't
2: go so far as to say that it is it, a kind of genocide, but you're saying that that, that those mechanisms are always present and on our, on a our on daily basis that make genocide possible. Yeah,
0: or, yeah that's or acceptable. That's one instance of the kinds of mechanisms that yeah continue to make yeah genocide all, all kinds of violence uh possible. Uh, yeah. And and I bas I summarize that in the book in terms of impunity that uh people uh, have the power to make decisions that have effects on others without being meaningfully held accountable for those decisions. Uh that's the underlying uh you know way of summarizing all, all these kind of very different situations of disconnection uh, and and uh and, and it's behind not, you know, like not just genocide but but many kinds of violence.
2: Yeah, I mean, if you if you listen to interviews done by uh, d- d- done on um, uh, ba- bankers and stuff during the 2008 meltdown, mm-hmm. you hear similar arguments of you know I was just doing my job in terms of derivatives and and all that kind of stuff. So yeah. uh, it, it, there's a kind of bureaucratic distancing that that
1: yeah.
0: uh,
2: makes makes injustice uh, rationalizable. I guess if that's a word. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah, I mean, and they are they're not lying; like they are just doing their jobs. And if they don't do their jobs. Then, then they will pay a price, uh, mm-hmm. you know. In terms of, they might lose their jobs, lose their standing in the community that matters to them, and that's what's real for them. That's what's part of their experience. And the, the you know, so one person to keep their world sacrifices, you know, maybe thousands of people who lose who lose theirs because of an investment decision or what have you. And, um, but, uh, the, but the two are, are are removed from each other. So, so that that person who makes that decision. Isn't accountable to the people who suffer, and so the, the implication, you know, like what I'm demanding is on a broader level, is a society where we are all more accountable to each other than we are, mm-hmm. uh, and that's um, that that means a, a a deep reconfiguration of society. You couldn't achieve, uh, you couldn't make the shareholders or the banker responsible to, uh, you know, working people. Uh, on an assembly line in a factory in a in a blue collar town, without far-reaching consequences for how the whole economy operates, you couldn't you couldn't make um, uh, I mean there's efforts to make uh, you know the United States president responsible for uh, the consequences uh, to citizens in uh, Iraq or Syria or Latin America. I'm thinking back to the eighties um countries where the United States makes foreign policy interventions uh yeah but and whenever the accountability becomes real uh it it changes the whole dynamic of uh of politics uh, mm-hmm. so it, it and and of course i mean the American president is at least more accountable than like the russian president uh, so the 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 pro- the project of accountability in And opposing impunity um, has the potential to change the world that we live in. And I wanted to frame it in terms of impunity and power, not normativity. Uh, For me, it wasn't a question of what are the norms that govern us. Uh, It's the question of what are the practical ways in which we are accountable to each other. Uh, Mm -hmm. Once that accountability is there, then we'll develop the norms. For me, a crucial part of the analysis, and this is a shift from the mainstream of sociology or from the the mainstream of sociology that dominated in the field when I started the work, uh, is um, I wanted to shift away from seeing society as a normative order. Right? Um, and... Uh, uh, and For a a grassroots or uh, democratic politics, the message is: uh, people who are engaged in work for change is is, is don't focus so much on the um, on a normative regime and and look at what power relations are making the situation possible.
2: So, is there something Western about your argument, or do you see it applying to developing countries or other countries where these kind of structures may not have been present?
0: Uh, well, yes and yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the one of the, one of the influences for me is a project called World Systems Theory, associated with Emmanuel Wallerstein, and Wallerstein looks at uh, the global political order as a as a system. So, uh we although we all nominally live in different societies, all these societies are governed by uh nominally sovereign states. Uh so the state as an institution uh is global. There's no part of the world that isn't well where people live that isn't governed by a state, except like research stations in Antarctica. Uh and um uh states are interdependent. The existence of any one state is necessarily interconnected with what's going on in in all the others. So the the whole thing forms a a system. So the the point that I'm making is that uh, this is the globality of Western civilization. It has its roots in uh, historical development of Western Europe. But that civilization is now global. Uh, I'm, I'm fundamentally disagreeing with uh uh say Samuel Huntington who talks about clash of civilizations. Because he's defining uh-huh. civilizations normatively in terms of cultural codes and stuff, he can he can get away with saying that there's these multiple civilizations and there's Western civilization and then there's like Islamic civilization. But if we look at civilization in terms of its institutional structures, there's only one anymore. The others have all been absorbed. Uh so it's a Western centric argument, but it's about a Eurocentric or a Western centric World that we now live in, this European institution, the sovereign state, has been exported everywhere. Uh, so I'm hoping, yes, that the argument applies as much to developing countries as to the West.
2: Because, uh-huh. because uh, the, I mean, for example, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia or something. Uh, these are more kind of incidents, I guess, of genocide or events of genocide. So, as it, for your broader argument in terms of the the functioning. Of society itself, how did how do how would you apply that to these kind of flashes of yeah. genocide? I guess.
0: Yeah, uh, I was talking about habits and the ability to exclude the other from the universe of right. moral consideration. But the other dimension of that is sort of the macro dimension, which is the state. And the state, uh, I'm looking at it as the organization whose fundamental, um, you know, sine qua non, it's the thing that it can't exist without, is its monopoly over the means of Violence. Uh-huh. Uh, and um, in that sense, we can understand the Khmer Rouge uh, genocide um, in, in terms of the exportation of the Western state, the sovereign state, to that, uh, that country. Um, and here I'm really influenced by uh, a book called White Man's Burden, it was written by Basil Davids- Davidson. Uh, uh, He was looking at the Western state as an institution in Africa and and its its instability and its failures. You take people who have been governed by uh, political authorities that uh, had a different form than the sovereign state uh, and and you impose the sovereign state on them with its monopoly of force and its ability to tax and and, and reconfigure the economy through direct intervention that, that comes out of its monopoly on force. Uh, And and political questions arise that didn't previously exist or that have previously been settled in some way. So, uh, uh, who controls the state is incredibly, incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Uh, In in, uh, Cambodia, uh, the question of who controlled the state became uh, unsettled in the post-colonial period. Uh, And the Khmer Rouge... Um, once they took control of it, uh, the, one of the difficulties that I think that they had is that they had very little legitimacy outside of their original constituency in the eastern part of the country. And the only resource that they had to maintain their hold over power was to exercise the state's fundamental function, to use violence. So the, the genocide has this quality of um, trying to use, you know when When all you've got is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail mm-hmm. uh the, the Khmer Rouge managed to seize hold of a monopoly of military force in the country, but they they didn't have relationships of legitimacy uh, uh that um enabled the state to minimize its use of force so uh that um combined you know with other factors in the situation made um uh, the escalating use of force and increasingly indiscriminate use of force uh, um, marginally it gave it a marginal utility. That, that, that for every problem that came up, using using violence seemed like the most expedient solution. Uh, and uh, until the country was immersed in, in a bloodbath. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, again, even though it's a, we're, we're far removed from Western Europe. I'm looking at, and there are cultural dynamics particular to Cambodian society, uh, and Alex Hinton's written about them very well, uh, that are really important in that situation. And the dimension of it that I'm looking at is how the, the Western model of the sovereign state contributes to the problem.
2: The Western mo- So the Western model, even when it's not uh, a Western country,
0: so to speak. Yeah, even though it's not no. Yeah, but but as a post-colonial country, the form that its political institution had to take was um, the sovereign state. Right.
2: Um. So maybe a, li- a little bit on the the last word in your subtitle, which is genocide. Um. What what? Uh, how exactly have has genocide been defined uh, in the past, and where did you and where do you see some uh, some of the d- definitional setbacks that that you were uh, attempting to fix or grapple with?
0: Yeah, oh, um, it's really complex, the, the history of how genocide is defined. Almost everybody who writes about it has their own definition. Uh, right. There's, of course, there's the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide uh, oh. is, is the most widely recognized definition. It is international law. Uh, and, uh, and everybody has their quibbles with it. Everybody has their disagreements. Some people find it too broad uh, and want to restrict genocide only to mass murder because there 's provisions in the in the convention that imply that you can have a genocide without uh committing mass murder or with really killing people, for instance, just mm-hmm. by removing children from a group uh, and then there 's people who find it too narrow because it only focuses on uh certain means of committing genocide and 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 the exclusion of all others or it only focuses on uh, racial religious national or ethnic groups and leaves out for instance groups defined by political identity uh so that if if i decide you know president of indonesia i'm going to murder 500,000 communists which happened um in the, in the 1960s uh then um that doesn't meet the un convention definition Uh, But for me, uh, also part of the problem was it stressed the role of intention too much uh, for my purposes. I wanted to look at genocide as a process and for me in general, I want to look at social processes in ways, as things that exceed the intentions of the people who participate in them. So I don't want to be too restricted by uh, people's intentions. uh, Uh It's like if, if, for instance, we're talking about to pick a completely different topic, we're talking about uh, racism in the media. And and if I say, well, I didn't intend that comment to be racist, therefore it is not racist, a lot of people will find that really unsatisfying. Mm -hmm. Uh, In generalizing from that kind of intuition about things, I wanted to to get past uh, intentions, although I understand why you need to have intentions in a legal definition. If you're going to prosecute individuals and and uh, punish them uh, in a judicial process. You kind of need to have intentions in there. But I wanted to look at it uh, as a sociologist. So, uh, so I ended up defining genocide as, uh, and this is terrible, it's really abstract and wordy, um, a, an identity difference relation of categorical obliteration.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Which okay. is,
0: I really regret not finding a, a more accessible way to put that. Uh, I wanted to define it as a relationship uh, and, and to focus on how uh, it's a process that unfolds through a relation. It's an identity mm-hmm. difference relation because it it involves the definition of self and other. And, and sometimes genocides actually create those definitions as they're happening. Uh, so the genocide of communists in El Salvador and uh, Guatemala in the 1980s, so the communist was to some extent just created out of thin air—not completely out of thin air, but, but largely the manufactured by the perpetrators of genocide. Or, if, like famously, the Nazis defined Jewishness in a, in a way that had, you know, went way beyond how actual Jewish people experienced Jewish identity. Uh, so the the, the definite the, the self-other distinction gets generated through. The process of violence, uh, and uh, I-, I wanted to define it in terms of categorical obliteration. Because for me, what um, what's striking about genocide is the erasure of a collective identity through violence. Right. Right. It's not about the killing of people per se. That's not for me the target. Uh, it's it's the identity of the other. That has to be destroyed. So even if people physically survive, as long as their collective identity been erased, then that's um, uh, and, and what are some of the what are some of the ways in which this collective identity can be erased? Uh, well, in the case of the Armenian Holocaust uh, expulsion uh, and dispersal mm-hmm. uh, of a of a community, uh, so the, the the Turkish government during the First World War. Uh, physically expelled uh, the vast majority of its Armenian population from the country. A lot of people died. A lot of people were were killed, or were put in situations where their you know where death was uh, likely. Uh, it was a very violent process, uh, but a lot of people also survived. And cool. this was at one point an argument against calling it a genocide uh, because there were a lot of survivors. What for me made it the genocide is that this uh, collective identity of uh, Ottoman Armenians uh, was destroyed through dispersal. People could no longer relate to each other uh, as members of that community uh, through the the sheer force of their their physical separation from one another, as well as the destruction of the institutions um, that had made it possible for them to have a life together. Uh, another is removing children from a group and re-educating them. So in Canada, uh, the Indian residential school system uh, was designed openly with the purpose of removing children from Indigenous families, uh, raising them to be, uh, you know, Anglo-white Canadians with Indigenous, you know, physical features—white uh, white children in brown skins—and um, um, so that, in part, so that uh, the indigenous cultures that they came from would cease to exist, or would cease to be an obstacle to Ottawa's plans for developing the country.
2: Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I, I mean, what? So, in that, under that definition, would you say a kind of uh, a process of assimilation, even, or a policy of assimilation, can have those kinds of consequences?
0: It can. Assimilation is a slippery word because uh, yeah. it, you know, it can mean, uh, well, you're going to help somebody who comes to this country and they speak, you know, I don't Ukrainian. Uh, I'm, I'm half Ukrainian on my mom's side. Uh, you know, we, they, they speak Ukrainian and they're used to Ukrainian ways of doing things. And you're going to help them, like, learn how to operate in Canada and how to find a job and how to, like, get housing and, you know, get a bank account and all these things. And they're going to assimilate to Canadian society. Um and, and it's basically a benign process, uh, or, or it can mean um, we're going to take uh, we're going to take children from their parents. We're going to use force and deception to to um, remove legal custody uh, of children from their parents, uh, and, and we're going to raise these children to hate the culture that they came from, uh, to be ashamed of of their indigenous heritage. Uh, and uh, we're going to try and release them in a world um, where they will no longer even want to have any connection to to uh, to their parents, their aunts and uncles, to the community that they came from. So that, that's those are pretty extremely different phenomena, and they're all covered under the word assimilation. Mm-hmm. But I guess the the difference
2: again is this tricky issue of intent, right? What was your initial intent in in the process of uh, the policy of assimilation, and then? Mm-hmm. Would it- it isn't the difference um, based on this notion of intent?
0: Uh, well, I talk about intent with respect to the Indian residential schools because it's convenient, because it's there. And, and it makes it easier for people to connect with, uh, that we can find these sort of open statements uh, of, you know, saying, I want, you know, to eliminate, like uh, Duncan Campbell Scott saying, I want to end the Indian problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, um but what I'm really more interested in is the consequence. So when I write in the book, uh, and I don't write much about residential schools in the book. There's like a page about mm-hmm. Canadian context. I don't want to mislead anybody. Uh, but in the book, I do write about Tasmania. And there's this really interesting play of intent in the British treatment of Aboriginal and Tasmanians uh, because there is an attempt to... I mean, first, there's a war an informal war between settlers and and the Tasmanians. And the government sort of uh, waffles uh, over whether it supports the settlers in this war or whether it's trying to uh, protect the lives of Tasmanians. It's kind of of, indecisive about that. And then uh, there's an attempt to physically round up all the Tasmanians that completely fails. And then there's uh, an attempt to... entice them to voluntarily relocate to a community where nominally they're going to be fed and protected. Uh, And that succeeds, and they are relocated, uh, and then have the community uh, where they're given inadequate food and housing and um, subjected to all kinds of cultural re-education, they begin to die off. Uh, And uh, the outcome is the destruction, almost complete destruction, of... Uh, indigenous Tasmanian identity. The intent is really murky. The intent seems to kind of want go all over the place, uh, depending on the twists and turns of the situation. Uh, the outcome is really clear, and in a sense, it, it it would have been clear to people at the time. And there were people who were identifying what was going on, um, but you, you have, you're hard pressed to find some uh, dis policymaker in a position of decisive authority who who was standing up and saying, oh, we should just get rid of these people. You'd you'd find people writing into the newspapers in in Tasmania saying that that should happen, but the policymakers weren't weren't saying that. But their actions um, spoke louder than their words. (laughs)
2: Um,
0: There's a point in the book where you... uh,
2: Kind of describe the three dimensions in which uh, genocide uh, takes place, and, and I'll just kind of quote uh, from it. On, I think it's page twelve where you say uh, the possibility of genocide results from social relations operating along three dimensions: the identity difference, the impunity interdependence, and interest indifference. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> I wonder. I wonder if you can unpack what those three yeah. are.
0: About. Being cutesy and putting a lot of eyes in there because I thought that would make it <laughs> memorable. Um, yeah, I wanted to come up with a, you know, for for the positivists in the audience, I wanted to come up with a clear predictive <laughs> matrix, something that could be falsified. And uh, so those three axes uh, uh, are: um, the identity difference axis is something that's always present in social life. We're always defining social identities on the basis of of difference. Uh, who we're yeah. not is as important. Who we are as the things that we actually do, and and then people always form groups. But there has to be a fairly strong polarization of us versus them for genocide to take place. It has to be, uh, a, it has to become a binary distinction, so that there is uh, people who are them are absolutely not also us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's, you know, an extreme situation. Like, typically in social life, people are them and us at the same time quite often. You know, like, uh, you know, my, my friend, you know, my one of my best friends is a Roman Catholic. I'm not Roman Catholic. So he's he's them, but he's also us because we're buddies and we hang out and there's like an overlap between these categories. They're not, it's not a binary opposition. But in, in genocide, it becomes a binary opposition. Uh, and um, in, there has to be the impunity To commit genocide, and I really wanted to focus on this—that it's a power imbalance uh, that makes it possible. So, one of the biggest things that we can do to prevent genocide concretely within the existing social order is to oppose the impunity of states to commit violence. And I think Mm -hmm. you know um, other genocide scholars agree with me that generally supporting human rights in general, uh, supporting democratic accountability in general, is an important part of creating a world without genocide. Uh, and um, uh, and there has to be an interest in it. And and this is the Marxist part of me. I wanted to connect the analysis of how and why and when genocide happens to the analysis of the social interests that are being served. So even though when uh, people instigate genocide, and leaders of genocide uh, try to motivate others to engage in the project, they may deploy very heated, charged, Rhetoric about identity, personal grievance, ideology. Always, for the thing to happen, there's some practical interest that's being served. It doesn't happen just because a group of people in a fit of irrationality decides to hate another group of people. Somebody is benefiting from instigating the project. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, probably their followers who participate are also benefiting in some practical way, and we need to identify what those, is, what those interests are. So, you, you know, if a group of people, if there's contempt, if there's radical othering, but there's nothing to be gained, there might be a lot of violence, discrimination, oppression, but there won't be full-blown genocide. Hmm. Yeah, so that's the argument that I'm making. And the flip side is what is gained and how is genocide actually productive for people? So what gets produced, what gets generated, one of the things that genocide helps to accomplish for its perpetrators is it gives the perpetrator group this tremendous sense of solidarity. You know, we're joined together in this project. Uh, and, and I think the fact that it's atrocious contributes to that, uh, that we're joined together in doing this terrible thing. I think that uh, uh, might feed into the, the, um, the productive quality of genocide that, uh, uh, you know, when, when people... You know, on, on the ground, when people participate in, in atrocious acts together, it's, it, it can be a very strong bonding device. And uh, it's one of the, the collective gains at the level of society as a whole that, that I think, motivates genocide. So with those three axes, it's partly about predicting when and where genocide's going to happen and partly, at the same time, a way to investigate uh, you know what I think are the factors that that un- help us understand it
2: the, uh, the The second part of your book is uh, is all uh, case studies kind of um, providing evidence I guess for your broader argument in part one um, i don 't want to get into every single case study that you discussed, but maybe maybe you can talk a little bit about why you chose these particular uh, countries and uh, maybe just elaborate on two i guess maybe
0: India and Rwanda or something like that. Mm. Sure. Uh, something I haven't actually talked about before is the uh idea of what I call in the book differentiation. Um uh-huh. I- I'm I'm kinda answering another question that's on the list that you showed me, but that didn't hasn't come up. Um because it's a really important part of the book. Uh uh to make the link between how a state does something and how individuals do something, I proposed that um, uh, there's a kind of an emotional economy that connects people and binds us into, into a state. And it's economy based on, on deference. So that we, okay. we have, and, and this is expressed in our social norms, so that we have an understanding, an intuitive understanding, of who we should defer to, who we should give um, authority to, and who we should demand deference from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's important about this for the purpose of the state is that these relations of deference between individuals form a coherent whole they form a coherent network with uh the the sovereign at the top uh and uh what sort of drives all of this deferring is the threat or the potential for for violence uh, in our own everyday lives, it's symbolic violence that we're most afraid of. We're most afraid of being like humiliated or embarrassed. Yeah. So you know, in, in a really minor setting, at the dinner table, uh, I committed faux pas. I'm embarrassed. Uh, but you know, if I mm, fail to defer to the right person, like on the job or in an institutional setting, I might get uh, you know humiliated by that person, like a child. And then the most extreme form of that is if I fail to defer you know, to the police or the army, you know, I might get. Um, arrested or, or worse. Uh and, and without that economy of deference, the state can't function. It needs uh you know, it needs that. Um in cases of genocide, uh it becomes impossible for the victim group to defer enough. Uh uh there, uh we def- people accept our deference because they get something out of it. Uh and uh uh when they no longer need anything from us, uh when the gains of, of perpetuating violence against us outweigh the costs or outweigh the the the, the gains um to be had from tolerating us then, then violence becomes possible. Uh in Rwanda uh, ooh, we had a really charged situation that accumulated over the course of like a hundred years. Uh, you know even in the late nineteenth century uh a remarkably a situation remarkably similar to Western Europe was developing in terms of the the formation of a sovereign state and the demand um by uh, uh the Tutsi aristocracy uh for deference. Uh, and uh, under the colonial administration, initially that was intensified and charge, The state became stronger and more powerful. The demand for deference became more extreme. Uh, and then immediately in the process of decolonization, the, the symbolic relationship was flipped. So that, that Hutus were put in charge and Tutsis were now expected to be the deferential ones. Uh, and it, it created this deep ambiguity, this uncertainty uh, that, that, that persisted for, for decades. Uh, the fear, the anxiety for Hutus was, are the Tutsis going to return and reassume their, their uh, dominant role and, and are we going to get, you know, uh, is deference going to be demanded of us? The the, the On a psychological level, the reason that's, that's terrifying is it represents the destruction of the self. Uh, when the self is, is built up in terms of um, a particular conception of your place in relation to deference, to be... Uh, demoted it is is uh, a destruction of that self image uh of that social self um, so uh you know middle class and like quasi elite hutus could could really fear the possibility of uh of a return of the tutsis to power uh mm-hmm. and not just in terms of the practical consequences well I might lose my cushy job in the government but in terms of the destruction of of their own selfhood uh so that was that was part of i think what made the ideology of Hutu power possible uh and then uh, at the at the concrete level of of uh control over state violence uh over the sovereign's monopoly of force of course that was very much in in question um the the civil war civil wars always put that into question uh so the for the Hutu perpetrators. And for the genocide heirs, uh, genocide was uh, a means to accomplish to resolve both of those problems at once, to, to, to decisively eliminate the challenge to uh, the sovereign's monopoly on the means of force, and uh, also at the same time decisively remove the, the threat uh, posed by uh, Tutsi identity, the possibility of a restoration of Tutsi authority. Uh, and 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 that enter, that struggle had the stakes that it did because uh, of the modern state in Rwanda. And Rwanda is actually a highly bureaucratized uh, um, society, society where the state is very very strong. The level of uh, social surveillance and and state uh, intervention in day-to-day life is formidable. Uh, mm-hmm. So the question of who controls the state. Is is really important because uh, it that that group that identity the the that sovereign will have a decisive impact on every aspect of their, of day to day life for for all Rwandans. Uh, if if another solution had been found to how to organize post colonial uh, Rwanda, then the problems and and the, the challenges would have been different. Uh, but you're asking about India too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: um, but does that? Because you, you have three different you have three different kinds of categories here in part two, and I was just wondering, you know, uh, how are you approaching uh, you know colonize this notion of colonized others and the national others and ideological others, right?
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm just thinking about that for a sec. I wanted to look at Rwanda and Turkey partly because they're they're very mainstream in the literature. Uh you know, genocide scholars there's a lot of literature on, on comparatively on uh, Rwanda and, and Turkey. Of course there's the most literature on the Holocaust and in the book I actually did I didn't make the Holocaust a case study, I'd talk about it, but there's so much mm-hmm. written about it um that I wanted I wanted mostly to focus on lesser known episodes and episodes that are uh, some of which aren't even really considered genocide uh, so the the, um, the paired cases of Tasmania and India are both instances or first of all colonization and and genocide happening through colonization in different ways, and specifically british colonization because in when the study of in the history of colonization, the British often come off as like comparatively uh, decent. Uh, when you compare them with like the Spanish or the Portuguese in in uh, in the Americas, the British seem relatively benign. And I wanted to, as I'm always wanting to do is to like unsettle our assumptions about good guys and bad guys and to actually break down that binary opposition uh, and look at, instead of looking at identities, look at practices. Uh, so, um, yeah, so that was the, the logic that guided that choice of including India. And because it's barely a genocide, like it, it I, I don't know anybody else except Mike Davis, uh, who mm. argues that it's a genocide or that it, or he uses that term and he actually uses the term Holocaust. Uh, mm. and, uh, which is not quite the same thing as genocide. So I wanted to look at it. Can we have a genocide that happens accidentally or in a completely unintended way? Uh you know, both of the cases of colonial genocide, Tasmania, India, were, were like that. But um, uh, India the most, because, it, I mean, there's nobody who's standing up and saying, what we want to do is engineer a famine, because we right. want to subjugate these people. Uh, nobody is saying that. Uh, uh, the famine comes about through the application of... Uh, Rigorous free market policies towards the agricultural economy. It, first of all, the commercialization of what had been a subsistence economy, which makes uh, people dependent on the the market for their physical survival, uh, where previously they had not been. Uh, you know, uh, before colonization, there were famines, uh, but there were two important differences. After colonization, first of all, in a subsistence economy, uh, famine happens, uh, you know, more directly because of uh, e- ecological disturbances. But also, uh, the Davis argues that the governors uh, in India attempted relief efforts to, to mitigate the effects of the famine. Um, that was something that the British colonizers actively prohibited in their in, in their attempt to. Marketize the rural economy uh, uh, they they made illegal and made active efforts to stop even charitable relief efforts uh, and um, uh to make sure that nobody got any food who couldn't afford to pay for it mm-hmm.
2: uh, so i I guess a related question is how much of the definition of genocide uh, needs to be adopted by the community or group themselves, in other words um if if as you say a genocide happens accidentally does does the group to which it happened have to kind of know that that happened to them in order for does there have to be a self understanding that they were victimized, or is that not really necessary again it's the more consequences, but who determines the consequence of guess
0: yeah yeah um well, I mean on a practical level, yeah, if if the uh if the group to whom this event happened don't find the concept of genocide useful, then as a scholar me calling it genocide isn't going to go very far. Mm-hmm. Uh and that's really important in the context of uh Canadian situation. Um, ultimately as a I can say as a scholar uh, on on these and these basis uh, the word genocide is applicable to what happened in Canada. But whether we're going to call it genocide or not ultimately has to be decided by uh, Indigenous people. And the point of the concept is to uh, protect people's dignity and, and advance their um, their vitality and viability as as bearers of culture. Uh, if the word genocide is counterproductive because of the, the political dynamics and that, the backlash that it produces, or whatever, then then it you know it's not the right tool for the job. No. Uh, but yeah, in the case of India, um, uh, you know, Mike Davis's argument in his book Late Victorian Holocaust was an indictment of uh, sort of li- of liberal capitalism. And, and for me also, I'm wanting to use the concepts uh, in order to look at the kinds of systemic destruction that get uh, produced when there are these situations of gross impunity, when people's lives become uh, the fodder for a social experiment, uh, or uh, are, are when when something like mass famine is the byproduct of social policies that are aimed in a you know at in a completely different direction. They're aimed at empire building and whatever. And pe- it just happened that people's lives mattered so little that, that the colonial government could keep on doing what it was doing. Uh, you know, I, I want to ultimately to get us to question our trust in these normal institutions, the comfortable faith that we have, that, uh, the, that we live in more or less the best possible world, and that more or less uh those who have power have it because it's beneficial for us that they have it uh, i want mm-hmm. to question that that confidence um it's
2: great um uh, very interesting i'm sure the book will attract uh much much interest uh, what has been the reception been like so
0: far uh it's been interesting it's been picking up steam Um, yeah, it's sort of, uh, uh, I've had, um, kind of a lukewarm review from, from Martin Shaw, who's, who's a pretty authoritative spokesperson for the mainstream of genocide scholarship. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, uh, I wasn't surprised by that. Like we have a different worldview. So, uh, but, uh. I've had many individual scholars uh, express their appreciation for it. I had a really nice review that appeared in the Journal of Genocide Research by somebody who really got it. Uh and and um uh people involved in aboriginal activism here in Canada some of them have expressed a really strong appreciation for it which I found really uh moving even even though I don't write very much at all about Canada in the book uh you know people I've known have found it uh, useful, um, so I feel like it. It, uh, it started off on, on a good note, but not overwhelming, and it's just been kind of nice, nicely progressing and picking up steam.
2: Uh, well, what is your next project looking like? Are you, are you remaining in kind of genocide studies, or are you moving in other
0: directions? Uh, yeah, I'm actually. The argument of the book ultimately implies that what matters is. Uh, the question of how we deal with force in society and how we deal with difference. And what I want to look at next is at the opposite end of the spectrum. I want to look at voluntary, uh, non-hierarchical social movements. Uh, You know, movements like Occupy, Mm -hmm. uh, where there's a conscious attempt to make decisions collectively without hierarchy uh, or, you know, without any fixed uh hierarchy of people in institutional positions anyways and uh and there's a fundamental question of difference that comes up uh in those movements that I think they are really having trouble handling uh if you're say trying to organize in you know anarchist or quasi-anarchist you know, movement based on spokes councils, and um, and everybody who comes into the room is more or less on the same page. They have a, a common ideological orientation. Then um, it, it things go comparatively smoothly. But um, when um, uh, people come into the room who who don't have those assumptions in common, um, uh, then it, it seems like these movements keep hitting roadblocks how do we deal with the people in our movement who who, for instance you know want to be sexist and they buy into the economic goals but they have an unreflective sexism or what do we deal with people who are showing up at the Occupy camp who aren't activists who are homeless people and have a completely different life background and uh, from the, the middle class activists who are you know uh, constituting the camp, like these these kinds of questions about well, what to do with people who are like very different from one another, and how can we use this this process to to um, translate difference into some kind of effective action? Uh, do we ultimately have to be uh, the same? Do we have to have a common ideological or normative framework in order f- for an effective politics to happen? Uh, that's the kind of question I want to investigate next. So I'm going to be Looking at those kinds of social movements, looking at co-ops um, in general, trying to investigate this question of what happens when people try to make decisions together collectively on a on a fundamentally egalitarian basis. What kind of roadblocks do they hit, and what can we learn about how to make those efforts succeed more effectively?
2: Well, sounds great. I hope you'll come back and talk to us when that uh, Booker project uh, is out and about. Um, so the book again is *Barbaric Civilization: A Critical Sociology of Genocide*, uh, and we've been joined by Christopher Powell. So thanks again for joining us, Chris.
0: Yeah, thank you.